Today's scripture reading comes from Isaiah chapter 41, verses 1 through 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him, so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble from his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely, by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he, and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Micaiah. Some of you are wondering if we're going to use these for the sermon. We aren't. We just had a fun game that we just wanted to play. And so there it is. Christmas should be fun, right? Um, it should be a lot of fun. Um, well, if I haven't met you, my name's Gabe Coyle. I'm one of the pastors here. And today's kind of a special day for me. Um, my son, Zion, so our third born, is here with my wife uh, for the first Sunday. So it's his first day at church. He's a newcomer. He'll be going to Newcomer Coffee at 1045 during our second service, asking questions on what it looks like to become a member, all these great things. Um, no, but seriously, something that's fun that happens uh, for our family, Allie, my wife, our kids, and I, every year we, we go and we wait in line to see Santa, right? And listen, we worship Jesus on Christmas. It's all about Jesus, but still, right? It's, we've got to go see Santa. And I... I don't know why we actually do it as a family. It's kind of terrible. Um, we get there. We wait in line. And here, here's the deal. Kids are naturally scared of a lot of characters this time of year. Like the Grinch, especially, uh, you know, certain characters who've played the Grinch. They're terrifying. But Santa? Like, my kids are terrified of Santa. This is what it looks like when we go and see Santa. Like, they won't, they won't get near him. Uh, I, it's, it always is the same. We'll get close, and then, you know, everybody's happy. They're jump, they can't wait to talk to Santa. And then we get there, and then look at their faces. Like, zero, look at that. I mean, they're just utterly, Israel looks like he's about to die. Ava is, like, in shock. Usually it comes to this point where they just start screaming. And there's nothing, nothing more deflating as a parent. And walking by all these other kids and parents with your kids holding on to you, screaming, I want to go home. I don't like Santa. I'm like, hey, have fun. It's going to be great. It's going to be, it's going to be really a great experience. But can you blame kids? I mean, think about Santa just for a second. Like, 
this guy every year breaks into your house. <laughs> he eats some of your food. And then he does it wearing this like Victorian reenactment garb. I mean, it's straight up creepy. And uh, so my heart usually goes out, for our, out to my kids, even though we're going to do it again this year. Um, <laughs> we've got the tickets. We're going to Union Station. We're going to go look at Santa and scream. It's going to be fun. Um, but you remember, right? Everybody just kind of take a moment and remember back to those fears you had as a child. They felt so real. And then you grew up. And what happened to those fears? They just got bigger, right? Like they don't go away because the real world is utterly, utterly terrifying, isn't it? I mean, there are unforeseen natural disasters that can come into your world and take everything you've worked for. Senseless violence can take the ones that we love. Hidden sickness can steal our health. And then, of course, there are bees. I'm terrified of bees. I don't, this is like a little insight to me. I, I hate bees. Like even scientists, check it out. Scientists think they're a freak of nature. They don't know how these little bodies are carried by even smaller wings. Nobody can explain it. My theory, witchcraft. I think there's something to do with bees. If you're new, I don't actually believe that. But man, I'm terrified of bees. Just so you know. And, and, and no matter who you are, no matter how old you are, no matter where you grew up, no matter where you live, the, the enduring question for human beings is how do we live without fear in a terrifying world? How do, we, how do we live without fear in a terrifying world? And you know what God's answer is? We just heard it read for us this morning. When God confronts us in this question, his answer is, fear not, for I am with you. Don't be afraid because, this causal statement, because I'm right there with you. Now, to be clear, what God is not saying is what other biblical, he's not saying to rid ourselves of what other biblical writers have talked about when they talk about the fear of the Lord. That's something that's good. And if that's new news to you, that's another sermon for another day. But I want you to know that the text doesn't have a double speak about it. Instead, what God is saying, what God is saying is, hey, 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 all that out there, everything that you're seeing that, that terrifies you, you don't have to be afraid. And the only reason, the only real foundation you have, or the only hope you have to actually not be afraid of everything you see is understanding that I am with you. I'm right there with you in it. Now, what's our response when we hear that? I know for me, it's, it's something kind of like, yeah, still terrified. Um, and when you're honest with how you feel when you hear that phrase, isn't that true? Isn't that how we often lead our lives? We hear, fear not, for I am with you. And yet we still are crumbling under so much fear. And I began to ask myself, why is that? What is the reason, the reason these words don't bring the cof comfort that they're supposed to bring? Is it because we think that somehow God is indeed not with us? I don't think that's the main issue. I think it's part of the reason. Rather, I think the main reason these words do not elicit the comfort that they are intended is because when we hear that God is with us, we have little understanding or not a deep enough understanding of who indeed this God with us is. 
You see, in a terrifying world, God says, hey, 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 I want you to find your safety and your security in me. He's inviting you and I to come home. But when we get there, we feel like we're kind of living with a stranger. Which is why whenever, listen, here's a helpful tip. Whenever you see in Scripture God is seeking to comfort his people by telling them that he is with them, he always reminds them who he is. You know, A.W. Tozer, one of the prominent and leading theologians of the 20th century, he brilliantly noticed that what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The greatest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man or woman is not what he or she at any given time may say or do, but what he or she and his or her deep heart conceives God to be like. And so today, what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to better inform what we should think about and what we should understand about this God who is indeed with us. And we're going to go to Isaiah 41, where God tells Isaiah himself to tell the people of God what God has to say about himself. And what we're going to see, just to kind of organize our thoughts a little bit, are three crucial characteristics, okay? So if you're a note taker, three crucial characteristics about this God who is with us that we have to know, we have to remember, if, if we're ever to overcome our fear and find ourselves at home with God again, okay? So please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41. Now Isaiah, just to give you a little context, Isaiah was a prophet from roughly 740 B.C. to 681 B.C. We know this from broader historical research as well as what is mentioned in the text. And at this time, during his role as a prophet, he watched from afar the utter demise and destruction of the northern segment of Israel around 722 B.C. by the nation of Assyria. The destruction of the southern part of Israel, what is often called the kingdom of Judah, isn't destroyed till about 586 B.C., a hundred years roughly after Isaiah's death. But being a prophet, God gave Isaiah a vision of the destruction of Judah and its key city, Jerusalem. But he didn't stop there. He went even further and gave Isaiah a vision of a coming conqueror and an unseemingly savior. And it's not who you think it would be this time of year, okay? So when we come to the text, we find that God is actually working through Isaiah. Here, Isaiah chapter 41 is in this broader segment where God is saying, okay, I want you to now write to the people you haven't met yet. I want you to write to the people over 100 years from now while they're in exile, and I want you to comfort them with these words. Okay, this is going to be after the demise and destruction of Jerusalem, which they don't think is coming. But they're going to be in exile, and they're going to need to hear these words. What does God want the people, his people, in exile to know that he knew 100 years earlier? He wanted them to know that someone is coming. And we start to see this playing out in the beginning verses of Isaiah 41. This someone who is coming 
is going to strike terror in the hearts of everybody. Verses 2 through 4 define him as someone who's victorious. Like he turns kings into dust. He decimates nations. And it looks like he's taking over the whole world. Who is this guy? Who is this conqueror that's to come? His name is Cyrus II of Persia. Cyrus the Great, as he's also known. And the question comes, okay, so this is after Jerusalem and Judah are destroyed, right? They're in exile. Who, who brings this, who causes this conqueror to now rise up in fame and actually to go about this conquering tour of all these nations? Is it a god or a goddess of Persia that's behind this that receives the glory? Is it somehow Cyrus was really innovative? And God wants us to know, he wants the people to know that, that, that this was, that he is the one who's behind all of this. That he is the catalyst for Cyrus's rise. And we see this in verses 2 through 4. He says, who did this? Who did this? Who did it? You see this repetition of who? These rhetorical questions. And when you get to the end of verse 4, we read what? Who's behind all of this? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Then when you get to Isaiah 44, verse 28. He actually calls Cyrus by name before he's a public figure. Look at this, Isaiah 44, verse 28. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Interesting little tidbit, Josephus, a, a historian in the first century, writes in his Jewish antiquities, of an episode where Cyrus later goes and finds the Isaiah scroll and sees his name mentioned and freaks out and is so blown away that he actually hurries to fulfill the prophecy by sending Jews back to Jerusalem to build the city and build up the temple. So I want you to think about this for a second. Imagine again what Isaiah is doing. This is before the fall of Jerusalem, the key city of the southern segment of Judah, the kingdom of Judah. And he's writing to a people he hasn't even met yet. Jerusalem still seems fairly certain and strong. And he's saying there's a day coming when this is all going to fall apart. You're going to find yourself in a foreign land. And you're going to have so many questions. And so he begins to write words of comfort. He begins to write of Judah's demise, Jerusalem's fall, and the rise of a conqueror by the name of Cyrus. Fast forward just over 100 years, Jerusalem falls. Imagine you're one of those exiles. You're marching on your way to Babylon. You see everything that wraps up all of your hopes and your dreams, Jerusalem, all in destruction behind you. It's hard to imagine and to describe the sense of hopelessness that would come over you as a people and as an individual. You finally find yourself far away from home, a slave potentially, at the very least anything but free, in a foreign land far from home. And then you begin to hear some rumblings of a conqueror. Someone that even makes Babylon the great begin to shake in their knees. You begin to ask questions in the marketplace. Who is this person that's like beginning to cause threat to, to Babylon? Who, who is it? What's his name? And you finally make your way through and they say his name is Cyrus the Great. 
right then you begin to think back to all that God had spoken through Isaiah a century before. That yes, that was going to fall. Judah was going to fall. Jerusalem was going to fall because of the sin of the people of Israel. But this was not going to be the end of the story. There was a conqueror who was going to rise, and God was actually going to be the catalyst of that. And when the rest of your world feels like it's utterly crazy, when you look around and nothing seems to make sense, and you have all these questions, you finally get what God was seeking to communicate through Isaiah, what we as 21st century Christians can understand when we look back in retrospect. And here's the first crucial characteristic of our God who is with us that we need to remember, and it's this, is that number one, God never loses control. God never loses control, never. No matter what does come into your life or does not come into your life, God never loses control. And I don't want you to misunderstand me. I'm not saying that somehow God is the author of evil in the world. That's not what Scripture says. He's not the catalyst for all the suffering in your life. But when you are facing untold suffering, you can hold fast that the God who is with you has not lost control of the circumstances around you. This is the God who is with us. The author of history, who is perfect and just, who orchestrates his good purposes in the midst of a broken world in ways that we can only begin to fathom with our limited understanding as human beings. Of what are you afraid? What keeps you up at night? Do you really want to know? Not right now. <laughs> <laughs> but hear this. This is what we hear in the text is, fear not, for this God is with us. The God who never loses control. And I want us to move on now. We could spend a lot of time there, but here's the reason we need to move on. If we just stop there, when we understand God who is over all of history, it can feel as if God is so far above and so far beyond us that he's not actually with us. That he's not personable. He doesn't invite us into a personal relationship. We start to get these misconceptions because we begin to only focus on the grandeur of God. But notice then when we move on in Isaiah chapter 41 verse 8, God does something very specific. He starts to detail out the very specific history and engagement that he's had with Israel, his people. And he does so in kind of a reverse order. He first says, look, Israel, my chosen nation. I chose you as a nation who are the offspring of Jacob, whom he chose over Esau, who is the offspring of Abraham, his friend, the one whom he made a covenant, a promise that he would actually go through Abraham, through his offspring, through Israel, to actually bless the whole world and to bring about his goodness as he's designed it to be. And then it comes to a head when you get to verse 10. Look with me in your Bibles. Verse 10 is one of my favorite passages in Isaiah. We hear God say, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. And then in most translations, they don't capture the Hebrew tone as best I think that's possible. There's like this Hebrew phrase, off, 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 that keeps, to hi keeps highlighting the intensity here. So it actually goes, I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous 
right hand. Another way, uh, another translation ends verse 10 is by saying, I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. Do you see the growing intensity there? And the intimacy as well? But God is saying, don't be afraid. When you feel utterly weak, I'm going to strengthen you from the inside out. And, and even more than that, when you don't even feel like you can stand, I'm going to come alongside and I'm going to help you. And even more than that, when you feel like you've got nothing left, I'm just going to hold on to you. And I'm never going to let you go. As strong as my righteous right hand is, you can be sure that I am with you, that you don't have to be afraid. When humanity reaches its breaking point, that's exactly when God's presence rises to an intensification to meet us right there. You see, our God isn't just over history. He's got his hand on each and every one of our lives. Which is why it's so crucial to, yes, understand that God never loses control, but simultaneously the second crucial characteristic of our God that's with us is to understand that God never lets us go. God never lets us go. We may fail to keep our promises, but he never fails to keep his, even when we do. Isn't that what we see with Abraham's offspring? That he says, I'm going to keep my promise. When we feel like we don't have any strength to go on, God's not like, hey, you got to strengthen me. you got to show me you've got. No, he says, I'm going to come alongside and I'm going to help you. I'm going to carry you. And when we forget that, we actually become like the idolaters of old. These folks who used to make these idols and make a God in their own image. Or a God that they really wanted him to be like because they didn't like the way that this other God looked. And so they would make a God that looked the way that they wanted him to look. And they would hurry themselves. We see in verse 7, they hurry themselves. They try to strengthen their God. They try to bolster the works of their hands, hoping that that's going to assuage their fear. And it just exhausts them. How many times do we do that? But when we remember... When we remember that God's the one who never lets go of us, then we begin to have an imagination for what he can do with the smallest of things. I mean, the image that we see painted throughout the rest of Isaiah chapter four, 41 is where God uses a worm to plow the mountains. God uses a worm to plow the mountains. Let's look together here. Verses 14 and 15. Fear not, you worm Jacob. <laughs> The rest of the world looks at you as if you're insignificant, as if you're nothing. This small little tiny piece of property in the whole world. This small little group of people that the rest of the world wants to reject. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make of you a threshing sledge. New, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. And you shall make the hills like chaff. All the surrounding nations that may look huge to you, that may seem insurmountable, you don't have to be big for me to do really big things in the world. You're not there, my people, to strengthen me or to give me help. I'm here to help you. And my help is available to no end if you just ask. God never lets us go. What's your worst nightmare? 
the reason you don't want to go to bed at night. Or maybe your worst nightmare is what you experience Monday morning when you head into work and you're terrified again of all the challenges that await you. Maybe your worst nightmare is not being able to have enough this current pay period or to provide gifts for the people you love and pay your bills. Maybe your worst fear is being alone and feeling like loneliness is going to forever define your existence. Maybe it's this sense of inadequacy, whatever it is. Remember that God never lets us go. No matter how inadequate we may feel, fear not, this God is with you. And there's one more crucial characteristic that's just so brilliantly on display in Isaiah 41. And I think it's one of the most hopeful in all of Isaiah 41. And it begins right here in verse 17. Look with me. When the poor, when the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, Pause there for just a second. The poor and needy. Notice this is not an if statement. If the poor and needy. This is a when statement. There is going to come a point in every single person's life when they are leaning deeply into the purposes of God where you're going to exhaust everything and you're going to feel like you're in the desert. You're going to feel like your tongue is sticking to the roof of your mouth. Something that you feel like you desperately need is lacking and it feels like it's been going on for way too long. And you feel like you're never going to get out of the desert. You feel like you're on the brink of death. God says that's a when statement, not an if. What should we expect in that moment? Even as God's people, right? What should we expect in that moment? Continue to read on in verse 17. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. When it feels like you've been in the desert way, way too long, what we desperately need to understand, the third crucial characteristic of our God is that God will never, God never lets suffering have the final word for his people. You may feel like you've been in the desert for way too long and suffering feels like it's boiling over. Hear me, the promise that God is with us doesn't mean that God protects all pain from us. Rather, when the pain feels like it meets the brink and there really is, we're on the cusp of death and destruction. What we need to understand about God is not that he protects us from all pain and suffering, but instead that God never lets suffering have the final word. He's going to answer. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. That's a good word. Right? So God answers. I just got a witness up in here. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about, Lynn. Thank you for testifying. That's awesome. Hear me. God will answer. It's not always when we were looking for it. 
Or maybe we looked for it a lot earlier. And how do I know this? How do we know this not only in the testimonies in this room, but in the text before us? When God himself speaks it. Look at verse 20. In our text, it may say that, right? The English translation. But the the Hebrew conjunction there is the in order that. This is the purpose. This is how you know, right? That they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. God's brilliance shines most effective after the darkest of nights. And what we hear and see right here in the text is that the sun will rise on a new home yet. That God will turn the desert back into that ancient garden of Eden. He's planting trees. He's putting down roots of a permanent home where he can say to his children, where he'll actually never have to say to his children, fear not again. This is the promise that he's laid out for his kids, that God never lets suffering have the final word on our stories. God prophesies over a hundred years before the fall of Judah that it's going to fall. He prophesies over a hundred years before that another conqueror would come in order to bring comfort to the exiles that God has not lost control, but he's spoken an even better word through the gospel. That Emmanuel, God with us, not only was with us, but actually sent his son to be one of us, Jesus the Christ. And then Jesus went to the cross to die for us. And then he rose again on the third day physically before us. And then he ascended to the right hand of God the Father after 40 days of people touching and seeing and being with him. 40 days ascended to the right hand of God the Father ahead of us. But he didn't abandon us, but he sent his spirit to now dwell within us. And if he has done all of this and the records of his foretelling of what he has promised have come to pass again and again and again, then we can have great confidence that suffering will indeed not have the final word and that our home where he is making and he's gone ahead before to prepare for us will one day come to pass. So what's holding you back? What's holding you back from embracing Jesus and what God has done exclusively through the person and work of his son? Or maybe what's holding you back from stepping out in obedience to what Jesus, our king, is calling us to? Because God never lets suffering be the last word of those who are his and those who have embraced Jesus as their savior and their king. Fear not. For this God is with you. As someone who has um, modeled this for me in my life, uh, this life unshaken by fear, is my mom. And, I, and I've, I've talked about her quite a bit over the past couple years. What can you do but talk about your heroes, right? Um, her, her name's Heather. If you, she was here a couple weeks ago um, as a gift to help with, with Zion which is now on an escapade apparently somewhere else. Um, and my mom, she just displayed an, this, this knowledge of who God is, even when it felt like he was absent, both in those moments in the past and even today. Despite an unfaithful husband, my dad, despite a painful divorce, which came with so much heartache, financial insecurity, loneliness, and sense of betrayal, I saw her throughout my adolescent years weeping over her Bible, 
holding on to God's promises and his presence. While we felt extraordinarily weak, God and her was extraordinarily strong. And I remember one Sunday morning we were driving to church. And I don't think I wanted to go, but we didn't have that option in my house. <laughs> You're going to church. Yes, ma'am. Um, and we were going, and I just, you know, it was one of those seasons where I just really wanted my dad to walk back in the door. I just wanted a normal home for once. And I remember asking my mom, like, why does our life have to be like this? And my mom, just brilliant as she is, just saw like this unique crack in the armor of an adolescent kid. Uh, and she brilliantly said, she said, you know, our lives are a lot like an embroidery. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen these before, but we had these in our home. My mom used to do these a lot. Um, it's where you kind of stitch a design on a piece of fabric, right? Um, and, and my mom would say, our life is a lot like this embroidery. And really what we see is the backside. And on the backside, all of these strings and these colors just look like this jumbled mess. That is the majority of the way in which we see our lives. Things feel chaotic. They feel disconnected. We don't know why or the pattern or how they fit together. But she said every now and then God gives us a little glimpse of the other side. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful. Most of the time, we don't, we don't have a clue how it all fits together. Most of the time. But I trust that it's going to be beautiful, Gabe, because of who holds the embroidery in his hands. Gabe, I, I don't know why things had to go this way. There's plenty of things I wish didn't have to be like this. But I know it's going to work out in the end because of who's holding us, and I know he's holding us. Now, a lot of redemption has happened in my mom, this side of Christ's return, which isn't true for everyone's story. Sometimes the final note of God's great redemption is when Jesus returns. But there's been a lot of beauty in my mom's life, even yes now, where she's been able to be remarried to a great guy she met in the choir. <laughs> a godly guy who I'm really, really happy to call dad. And in the midst of that, I often in my life, in the midst of those dark moments, will go back to that embroidery analogy which I come to find out later that Corey Ten Boom used to use a lot in her gospel presentation, even though I'm pretty sure she got it from my mom. <laughs> what about you this morning, though? Where do you need God's comforting presence, the presence of the true God? Where do you need to remember this God is with us? Where are you right now tempted to believe that God has somehow lost control? Where are you right now wrestling with feeling like God has let you down or let you go? Where do you feel like suffering is beckoning and trying to vie to steal your hopefulness, saying that this is going to be the final word on your life? This is it. There's nothing better than this. Push that away because that's not who our God is. That is not who is with you and that is not who has promised something better for his people. Suffering, pain, Darkness is not the final note for God's people. So whatever it is you're wrestling through, whatever fear is continuing to knock on your door this Advent season, I want to challenge each and every one of us. And I want to do so in kind of a way by transforming the way we see something that we see all the time this time of year. The manger. The manger seems everywhere, isn't it? It's like in Hallmark. It's... Uh, in CVS, it's in Costco. Costco, they're huge. Uh, <laughs> that is a huge baby Jesus. It's on sale. Um, 
But they're everywhere. And so here's the deal. With this kind of ubiquitous symbol of Christmas, I want you to zero in on the God who is ubiquitous with us. To look in the manger and to see the God who actually is there. To remember the God who is over all of history, who's been orchestrating history to send his son Jesus, who the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, came at just the right time. This wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, well, I hope it lands. No, it's been orchestrated for our good. Christmas is the promise that God is indeed with us and that he will make our home beautiful again, and it will be with him. And that takes faith so many days. So wherever you're at and whatever fears you're wrestling through this Advent season, when you see the manger, remember the God who is with us and remember who indeed he is. That he steps forward towards your fears and mine and he says, I will never lose control. I will never let you go. And I will never let suffering have the final word. Fear not, for I am with you. Let's pray. God, I need that. (laughs) We all need that. We need you, we need the real you, and we need to know who indeed you are. Thank you that in Jesus we have great assurance that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And when you are with us, we have utter confidence that you are guiding even the most broken and messy parts of our lives towards the end of a beautiful story. Fight our fears with your presence and may your presence be palpable. We pray this by the power of your spirit who dwells within us and in the name of Jesus who has gone before us. Amen.